0: Revelation 2, 8 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You here at Florida Coast Church may have criteria that are not the same as everybody else. But let me ask you, what do you look for when you're looking for a church? Some people might look for convenient parking, might look for comfortable seating, might look for proximity to their home. These are all legitimate sort of concerns. They might look for a certain style of worship. They might look for a a certain level of musical ability. They might look uh, for people that are like them, or mm, at least people around whom they feel comfortable. They might look for certain age categories, uh, or they might look for a certain denomination. I hope in every case they're looking for good, solid, biblical teaching, that that's a non-negotiable, but uh, they might be looking for good programs for children, they might look for good programs for teenagers, or they might look for authenticity or simplicity or whatever it might be. Lots of different, uh, different criteria that we could have. Let me tell you about a church and see if this one would, would catch your attention. Uh, this church is financially poor. Not only are the members of the church poor, but the church itself is very poor in resources. It's just scraping by. It has almost nothing. And one of the reasons it has almost nothing is because it's almost universally despised and rejected by its neighbors. So it lives in a hostile environment. And in addition to that, uh, some some of its members are currently in prison. And some of them are on death row, and their outcome is still up in the air. They're waiting for a sentence to uh, be handed down pretty soon. Well, that would describe the church in Smyrna. What do you think? Would that be uh, top on your list if that were the description of uh, churches and you were looking for a church? Um, it's interesting. This is the church in Smyrna, and this is only... One, uh, I'm sorry. This is one of only two churches of these seven churches about which Jesus has only positive things to say. In in five of the cases, he has some criticism to level against the churches. But in only two, in this one and one other, is he altogether positive. Which gives us an idea that perhaps our criteria about what makes a good church. And Jesus' criteria about what makes a good church may not be completely aligned. And so we want to discover today what Jesus considers to be a good church and what was so good about this church in Smyrna and what we can learn from that church as we are beginning our church here at Florida Coast Church. Now, we saw last week that these letters are set up the same way. We have an introduction, and in this introduction... Jesus presents himself. And when Jesus presents himself, he presents himself using pieces from chapter 1. In chapter 1, he presented himself, and he presented himself in a vision, and he then spoke. And uh, in chapters 2 and 3, they go and they pick up pieces from that self-introduction of Jesus, that vision of Jesus. And what they do is they pick up pieces that are pertinent to the church. We saw last week that... Uh, he identified himself as the one who walks among the seven lampstands. And that was pertinent for Ephesus. Why? Because he says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. And so his self-identification went along with the particular need of the church. And so what he does here, he identifies himself here in verse uh, 8, and it says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, let's go back to chapter 1, and we'll see from where that came. Chapter 1, it says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. Then God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which is the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Then if you go down to verse 17... John turns around, he hears a voice speaking, and he turns around and he sees this vision, and he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, am I, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death ...and Hades, and that's how he identifies himself to the church in Smyrna. He says, I am the first and the last who died and came to life. And back in chapter 1, we looked at these remarkable verses. We saw that these verses, I am the first and the last, these come from Isaiah. And we went back and looked at Isaiah 41.4, Isaiah 44.6, Isaiah 48.12. But let me just remind you, who was speaking those words? I am the first and the last. And we go back to Isaiah, and it is the Lord God Almighty who is speaking those words. And here, who is speaking those words? Jesus is speaking those words. And so, you may or may not believe that Jesus is God, but it is indubitable that He presents Himself as God in the New Testament. And He is saying here, I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I am the one who is alive forevermore. Now, there's something interesting about this, this this, way he introduces himself in 1.17, and now once again in 2.7. He puts right next to each other the eternal and the historical. He says, I am the first and the last. I am the one who is alive. And we saw that that goes back to the the the, uh, the announcement of God to Moses, that I am the eternal one, the I am, the eternal existing one, but he says, I died. Now that's shocking, and it should, it should jar us a little bit. Didn't you just say that you're the everlasting one? You're the one who is at the beginning and the end. You are the one who is alive forevermore, and yeah, now you're saying, I died? And this is the this is the, the 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 genius of Christianity if you will this is the the message of Christianity that the eternal one not ceasing to be the eternal one has entered into our history as one of us and what is characteristic of humans in this fallen age we die and he entered into that experience with us but then he says I am the one who died and came So here we have the eternality of the Son of God, and we also have the incarnation becoming one of us, becoming a human, dying and rising again. In other words, we have the gospel in this one verse. We have the good news. The eternal God became one of us, died for us, rose for us. Now, um, in 118... He spelled out the implications of the fact that he died and rose again. He he just gestures at it in this verse two seven or two eight, but in one eighteen he says, uh, "I'm the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." So here he's giving the implications of the fact that he died and rose again. So he says the what he died and rose, and now he says the why. The why is, it gives him the keys of death and Hades. He's in charge of death. He's in charge of hell. Now, let me ask you something. What kind of person would be interested in knowing the one who has control over death and hell? What kind of person would be interested in in knowing the one who has control of death? anyone who's going to die, okay? So, this is pertinent information for a certain group of humans, those who are going to die. And um, this, is, this, is, this is significant, because he is the only one that can make this claim. There may be others who can say, I can explain death to you, or... I can I can make it less painful for you, or I can promise you something, but he's the only one who can say, I've been there, and I have mastered it, I have dominated it, and so it is mine to control. I am the one who is in control of it. Now, if you are in that category of humans, who is going to die, then this is pertinent information to you. For you to know the one who has mastery over it. We were transfixed a few weeks ago by the situation of the Thai soccer team uh, that was trapped four kilometers inside a cave. And I, before they were able to rescue them, I was reading about their situation, and I have to say I wasn't very optimistic as they were talking about the possibilities. And they could have sent in person after person after person, and the only thing they would have accomplished would be for more people to die. I thought it was a hopeless sort of situation. But what they needed to find was a certain type of person who could not only go into the cave, but also come out alive. But not only that, they needed to find a type of person who could go into the cave, come out alive, and bring People with Him. And amazingly, they found a small group of divers who were able to do that. You see, that's picturesque, isn't it, of what Jesus did. Um, If we have one human going into the grave after another, the rest of us could dive in after to try to rescue, and what would be the result? We would all remain in that grave. But if we can find one who's able to go into that grave and come out alive, and not only that, but go into that grave, coming out alive, and take some with Him, then we have found the one we need. We have found the one who has the keys, who has the power to conquer death for us. So I read that the divers, what they did is they just took the boys and they put them under their arms so that they wouldn't be too deep with their tanks on the back. They were put them under their arms and they swam out with the boys under their arms. That's where we need to be. That's where we need to be in relation to the one who was able to go into the grave and come out. Now there's a difference though. Those divers went into the grave alive, didn't they? And they came out alive. Jesus went into the grave dead, and he came out alive. And so we need to be under his arms in order to be rescued from death. That's how he identifies himself to this church. Why would he identify himself this way to this church? Well, we'll see. As we keep reading, what was the condition of the church Like Ephesus, Smyrna was a port city. It was up the coast from Ephesus, and these were rival cities. It rivaled Ephesus in terms of wealth, and in terms of power, and in terms of uh, intellectual prowess, and so on. But it, uh, was also outdid Ephesus in terms of its Roman devotion. It was staunchly pro-Roman even before the Roman Empire had taken everything over. They knew, they knew with whom to cast their lots and they, they declared themselves with the Romans before the Romans had even expanded their empire. They had built a temple to the goddess of Rome in 195 BC and in addition they competed for the privilege of building a temple to the Emperor Tiberius, the the uh, divine Emperor Tiberius in the Roman mindset, and they competed for the the privilege of building him a temple, and they won the privilege, and they built it in 26 B.C. So in that way, they even outrivaled the leading city, Ephesus, and they became a center for Roman emperor worship. Uh, We don't know how the church got started there. We don't have a record of that, but we have a pretty good idea of how it got started. Do you remember that Paul set up shop in Ephesus for about three years? And amazingly, amazingly, if you go back to Acts chapter 19, verse 10, it says that all of the province of Asia was evangelized. Asia was, a, was like a, a county, a province, and it says everyone in the province of Asia heard the gospel. So it was probably during those two or two and a half years, three years, that Paul was there, that the church was born. Now, um, the Christians there, as I mentioned, faced several severe tribulations. Verse 9, They were poor. I know your tribulation and your poverty. And in addition to that, they were set upon by a, a, a plot that involved both Jews and Romans. So they ganged up on the Christians. It says here that um, those, uh, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this is very strong language, and some people look at this and say, wow, this is anti Semitic. It's not anti Semitic. It's talking about a certain group of Jews who had forfeited their identity as Jews, and by opposing God's people, they had become a synagogue of adversary. That's what Satan means. Uh, they had become a synagogue of the adversary, a gathering of the adversary. By the way, um, Historically speaking, uh, when Christianity began to be disassociated with Judaism, it was associated with Judaism at the beginning, and so it was, it was protected under the umbrella of Judaism, because Judaism was a religio licito. It was a, a legitimate religion, a recognized religion, a tolerated religion in the Roman Empire. But then once Christianity began to be disassociated with it in the eyes of the Romans, guess what? It was no longer tolerated. It was illegitimate. It was to be stamped out. And that's why you have, from the end of the first century, up until the Edict of Toleration of Constantine, which was in 311 A.D., so we have about two centuries there of persecution. And that's what we see here. Some of them were about to be imprisoned. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, he's already called Satan the adversary, using that name, and now he calls him devil, which means slanderer. It says, the slanderer is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. So, this was not going to be a long period. This is one of these symbolic numbers in uh, in Revelation 10. It's a short period. Limited period. And uh, their imprisonment was not going to last long. Why not? Because the uh, purpose of imprisonment was not to punish. Uh, The purpose of imprisonment was to decide whether to kill them or not. So they were just holding them on death row until they decided what to do. And so likely some of them were about to die for their fate. That was the situation, or so it appeared. Because Jesus had a different evaluation of the situation. They were poor, but Jesus says what? But you are rich. Everybody looking on would say, Oh, those poor Christians, they just don't have much, do they? But Jesus said to them, I know your poverty, I know your financial straits, but you are rich. Why was He calling them rich? Well, if you go back to what we call the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Luke, the version is a bit different. And in Luke, it says, Blessed are you who are poor. Now, Matthew's version, it may have been a different accounting of the same sermon, or it may have been a different occasion when he preached a similar sermon. We don't know. But Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. But Luke says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So looking at the church at Smyrna, everybody look at it and say, Wow, poor people. And Jesus says, You're rich. Why are they rich? They have the kingdom of God. My friends, if you have the kingdom of God, there's no way you can be poor. You're rich. And He says to them, Smyrnans, you're rich. And then he goes on, and he finishes the reversal of all things. Uh, verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So the persecutors were having their blessing now, and the Smyrna Christians were those who possessed the kingdom of God. That wasn't what the eye could see, but Jesus really could see what was going on. Jesus also spoke of the, the slanderer's work. But look at how He does this. Look at verse 10, how He speaks about the devil's work. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. It's curious how He speaks about the devil's work. He says... Behold. Now, oftentimes in Scripture, we find angels, or the Lord Himself, coming and saying, Behold, and then He says what He's going to do. So, it's interesting that here He begins this announcement about what the devil is going to do by using this formula that's usually used for some sort of a divine action. Behold. Well, why did He start that way? The answer is because this was a divine action. Not only does he have the keys of death and hell, but he holds the leash that is around Satan's neck, and he says, "Behold, this is what the devil's going to do, this is what the, the slanderer is going to do, but he speaks about it as one who is in control of the whole situation. So he controls death he controls hell and he controls the devil himself the devil is going to do his bidding and here we have the purpose of it it says do not suffer what you or don't do not fear what you're about to suffer behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested that you may be tested we've already seen that word once if you look back at the letter to the church in ephesus Jesus says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. This same word, by the way, can be translated tested or tempted, but here in the immediate context, here in Revelation, it's a positive thing. You did a good job when you tested those false apostles and found that they were false. And you rejected them. Good job. Tested them. And now, right after that, he says, the devil's going to throw you into prison, and it may be that the devil thinks this is going to be a temptation, but he says, no. The purpose of this is that you may be tested and shown to be genuine and shown to be faithful. So, Jesus identification or Jesus description of this church is very different from what they could see on the outside. Now, then he calls them verses 10 and 11, and in each of these we have a call to repentance or a call to perseverance, and here we don't have a call to repentance. They, they Jesus didn't identify anything from which to repent. The first instruction was this. The first instruction was simply and we hear this all through scripture, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Jesus tells them beforehand what's going to happen. The devil's going to try to do this, but I'm doing it for this reason to test you, so don't be afraid. I am in control of this situation in your life. And he comes and says, Don't be afraid. Do not fear. That's the first thing. Um, The worst that their adversaries could do for them, or do to them, would be to kill them. And Jesus actually has already addressed that eventuality back in Luke chapter 12, verse 4. It's on page 965 of your Bibles. Here he tells them not to have any fear. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Speaking of God. So, uh, he's saying, don't be afraid. What can your persecutors do to you? What's the worst they can do? The worst they can do is kill you. And if that's the worst they can do, then you don't need to be afraid. Why? Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died, and I came to life again. And I'm the one who has the keys of death and hell. So, don't be afraid, because that's all that they can do to you. You see, this had happened before. It had happened before, and it had backfired. You see, it had happened before that some Jews and some Romans had gotten together. And it was in the case of Jesus. They also conspired against Him. They also slandered Him. They also brought Him to a sham trial. And they also had Him sentenced to death and executed. But it backfired. They thought they were taking care of a problem. But they didn't deal with the resurrection. They didn't count on the resurrection. And they fell right into the divine plan. They tried. And the worst they could do to Jesus was kill Him. But that was all. But it backfired three days later as he rose from the dead. And it backfired in the case of the Smyrna Christians, and it has always backfired on those who rise up against God's people and try to wield against us the threat of death, because we are the people of the one who has authority over death. If that's the worst they can do to us, then we have nothing to fear. Fear not. Now, he then called them, also in verse 10, to be faithful. We can talk this way about death, that he's conquered it, but we're humans, and we're fragile, and we're fearful And we are likely to give in under severe temptation and trial. but He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. That's the second call. First of all, don't fear, and be faithful unto death. Those who continue to believe... Will receive the crown of life. He says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What is the crown of life? The crown of life is life. We saw last week that the tree of life that is promised to those who overcome is life. And here we have another image. Life was presented as a tree with its fruits, now life is presented as a crown. If you continue to be faithful to the end, believing to the end, you will receive the crown of life. Now, this call is the same for those who were to become martyrs, as it is for all Christians. For all Christians. We're not in the same sort of situation in which they were, but the call is still the same. Do not fear, and be faithful unto death. Um, This is is a very important thing to emphasize because unfortunately in evangelical churches, this doctrine of perseverance until the end has been watered down. The call all through Scripture is, is not make some initial joyful response to the gospel and then get on with your lives and do whatever you want. The call is always... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and believe tomorrow and believe the next day and believe the day after that and continue believing and continue walking in faith until the end and receive the crown of life. You'll hear some people just sort of glibly say, well, once saved, always saved. And that's not incorrect, but it gives the wrong idea oftentimes because it oftentimes gives the idea of, Oh yes, if you responded to an evangelistic appeal 40 years ago, and you walked the aisle, and you responded, you were saved, so don't worry about anything after that. Don't worry about whether there's evidence in your life of any change, or of any love for God, or of any love for neighbor, or of any passion for the lost. Don't worry about those sort of things, or any longing for purity and repentance. Don't worry about that. Hey, you walked the aisle, everything's good, you're in. That's the, that's the danger of that expression. It's not wrong, but it can be deceptive. A better way to say it is this. Be faithful to the end. Keep believing to the end, and you will receive the crown of life. Why will we receive the crown of life? we receive the crown of life because Christ has died, and Christ has risen again. And if we are believing now, we receive that crown. If we're believing on the day of our death, we receive that crown. Now, the good news is, God will preserve His people. And God will enable His people to persevere to the end. So the perseverance in faith is really God's preserving us in our faith. But that's the message to them, that's the message to us. And then we have the the call to hear what the Spirit says. Verse 11, this is in all of them, all of the letters. He who has an ear, she who has an ear, let him hear, let her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we saw last week, and we see again, he's speaking to the church, but then he gives this individual call, doesn't he? How is our church going to be faithful to the end? It's going to be faithful to the end, if I'm faithful to the end, and if you're faithful to the end. How is our church going to hear what the Spirit is saying? if I hear what the Spirit is saying, if you hear what the Spirit is saying. So there's this individual call at the end to all of us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then we have the promise. And it says here, in all of them, it talks about the one who conquers. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Why all this emphasis on death with Smyrna? We already saw, because some of them were likely about to die. But he says... If you conquer, how conquer? By continuing to believe, by continuing to walk, by continuing to practice your faith. How? What will you receive? You will receive the, this this power over the second death. What is the second death? Well, the first death is our physical death. And as much as we might like to be released from that, we have no promise in Scripture that we will avoid the first death. In fact, we're told that we will experience that first first death. The the dissolution of our bodies. We can count on that. But there is the second death, and we have the definition of the second death in Revelation chapter 20. At the end of the same book, Revelation chapter 20, page 1143 in your Bibles. Revelation 20.14. It says, Then death and Hades... Didn't we just hear something about death death and Hades? Didn't we hear about the one who has the keys of those? Well, here we're getting to the end. It says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So somebody is throwing death and Hades. Somebody who has power over death and Hades is throwing them into the lake of fire. And then it says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, here we have the second death. The second death is what? It's eternal punishment. What we usually call hell itself. So, what's he saying here? He's saying if you conquer, you don't need to worry about that. Even if you experience the first death through martyrdom, you don't need to worry about the second death. Because the second death cannot hurt you if you are in Christ, and thus have your name written in the book of life. Now, how long did this persecution last in Smyrna in the first century? Ten days, a limited period. We don't know any more about how long it lasted or how many people died in it, but we do know that persecution broke out periodically in Smyrna since that day. Do you remember I mentioned Ignatius last week? Ignatius was traveling to Rome in order to be martyred, and he stopped in Smyrna. And once he had stopped in Smyrna, he wrote a letter, he wrote a number of letters, we still have uh, some of these letters, he wrote a letter back to the pastor in Smyrna. And by the way, he was writing as he was going to his martyrdom, saying, please don't intervene. Nobody's going to take this from me. Don't try to get in my way. I'm going to Rome to be martyred. And so, he wrote back to Smyrna, to the pastor, whose name was Polycarp. Polycarp. Now, Polycarp's interesting, because Polycarp may have known the Apostle John. So, Polycarp was the pastor in Smyrna, and Ignatius writes him a letter in 115 A.D. Now, we have something else written 40 years after that. So, now we're in the 150s. And there was an account written in the 150s called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. So not only did Ignatius meet his end as a martyr in Rome, Polycarp met his end as a martyr in Smyrna. So we're talking about 50, 55 years after this persecution that's recorded here in Revelation, and it's still going on in Smyrna, at least periodically. It's a fascinating fascinating read. You can look it up. Just type in the martyrdom of Polycarp and read this account of his martyrdom. Uh, they arrested him. They took him to the, the stadium. And there, once again, Jews and Romans were conspiring against the Christians. And they gave him an opportunity to recant. And they said to him, Just swear by Caesar and say, away with the atheists, because that's what they considered Christians, to be atheists, because they didn't believe in the divine Caesar, and the divine pantheon of gods, Roman gods. So he said, he, the proconsul just said, just, just swear by Caesar and say, away with the atheists, and, and we'll let you go. And so Polycarp sighed, and he looked up to heaven, and he motioned to the crowd and said, away with the atheists. Well, this didn't sit real well with the proconsul. But he said, old man, have regard for your age. I don't really want to do this to you. What he really wanted was a, a recantation. What he really wanted was for him to deny Christ publicly. They didn't really want to have to kill him. But he said, old man, have, have mercy on your age. And and just, just deny Christ, and, and it will be all over. And Polycarp responded and said, He said, 86 years have I served Christ, and He has done me no harm. How could I now deny the Master who bought me? And then the proconsul tried to to turn it up. He said, I have beasts. And Polycarp said, call for them. And he said, if you despise the beasts, I have fire. And he said, Polycarp responded and said, you... Talk about a fire that burns for a little while and then is extinguished, but you know nothing about the fire that burns forever. The second death. And so he sent the the proconsul, sent the announcer out to the middle, and he proclaimed three times Polycarp has confessed himself a Christian. Polycarp has confessed himself a Christian. Polycarp has confessed himself a Christian. And so they put him in the middle of the flames, or in the, on the stake. They were going to nail him to it, and he said, you don't need to nail me to it. I'm not going anywhere. And they lit the flames. And Polycarp, yes, he experienced the first death, Yes, he experienced those flames that burn for a little while, but then are extinguished. But he was crowned with the crown of life. And that second death, it couldn't touch him. Now, I suppose this letter to Smyrna is getting some attention recently. Because there's another pastor who has been set upon... Slandered, falsely accused, and thrown into prison. We've been praying for him. His name is Andrew Brunson. And he was the founder of the Resurrection Church in Izmir, which is the new name for the city of Smyrna. Same place, same things going on. But he's the pastor of what church? The Resurrection Church Church the church of the one who died, the one who rose again, the one who has death and Hades and the devil in his control. In that city of some million, five million, I'm sorry, five million, there are two or three hundred native believers. And in that country of some 80 million, there are a few thousand believers. And I'm guessing that they were much like this church in Smyrna probably poor for the most part, certainly persecuted imprisoned for sure and I don't know if any of them will be put to death for their faith or not we at Florida Coast Church probably have a hard time identifying don't we we're not poor we're not persecuted Uh, we're not imprisoned for our faith we don't fear martyrdom whether that will ever come to us here in the United States is beyond our knowledge at this point it may, it may not there's another uh, temptation that we'll see in some of the later letters that probably relate more to our situation than this one but whatever our future may be, the instruction is still the same. Do not fear what's going to happen to you. Be faithful unto death, however that death may come. Give careful attention to the words of God spoken in His Word through His Spirit and conquer by faith. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the fact that 2,000 years later, there is still a church in Smyrna. Its lampstand was not taken away. It's a small church. It's a poor church. It's a persecuted church. It's an imprisoned church, just like it was 20 centuries ago. But We thank You for the faithful in that city, for the faithful in the first century, for Polycarp in the second century, for Andrew Brunson today, and for unnamed countless others whose names we don't know, but whose names are written in the book of life. We thank you that they were able to be faithful unto death. And we pray for ourselves, here in our comfort, here in our freedom, they would not be afraid that we would be faithful unto death, that we would hear Your words, and that we too would conquer by faith that we might receive the crown of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.